Radical Unity series begins now, and it's a timely, timely spot to put this because we're 14 months away from an election, and this country is going to be crazier and crazier over the next four, 14 months as we head toward this election. And the reality is our country is going increasingly insane with division and outrage. And so knowing this Radical Unity series is, is here and upon us, I've been keeping kind of mental notes and physical notes of some of the outrageous things that have happened just this week. Here's two examples. A liberal blogger wrote this week that wearing any red hat is offensive and can trigger fear in people because it reminds people of the Trump MAGA hat. So somebody tweeted her in response and said, does that mean I can't wear my Cincinnati Reds baseball hat? And here's what she responded. Quote, wearing a red baseball hat is not worth disenfranchising people who might feel unsafe. Outrage. The conservative media, this is not a, this is not a very popular um, writer. Conservative media, because they want outrage, is they grab a hold of that and they spread it national and everybody's all upset about these snowflakes, right? These precious people who feel that they're so unique yet they're really just fragile. Back and forth over this little kind of insignificant comment. Here's another example. News outlets went absolutely nuts over Trump's sharpied weather map, right? There it is, that little addition there. Okay, take that off the screen, tired of it. The left is crying liar, the right is wondering why there's such outrage over such a small thing. But that's what we do, that's what we do. Those are just two of dozens of examples of outrage and division that just happened this week. Everybody is on a hair trigger, especially when it comes to politics. Now I wanna just let you know, this is not a series about politics but that's the culture that we live in. So just by way of illustration, I'm gonna give you the, the normal political bell curve of the United States of America. It looks something like this. Um, there are independents, moderates in the middle, and that's a growing group. There are more independents uh, that are, are, are growing in the middle there. Uh, then there are the people who are more conservative. You have moderate Republicans, conservative Republicans, and then what this graph calls the extreme right. I don't like the word extreme. I don't like the word radical. Even though the series is called Radical, hold that thought. There's the extreme right, very uh, thoroughly conservative. And then you go to the left, there's conservative Democrats, liberal Democrats, extreme left, thoroughly liberal, right? Now, here's the way things just happen. Those on the extreme left or extreme right are radical left and radical right. Again, I don't like the words, it's just a vernacular. A lot of them make their living at politics. They make their living with kind of outrage and they're selling books, they're getting airtime, they have shows, they're, they're trying to push something or fundraise. And, and so there are those at the extreme and their job, literally some of them, their job is to pull people from the middle to their camp. And in today's day and age, that is working very well. This is, these are statistics from the Pew Research Institute. Here's our political landscape, 1999. That's at the seam of Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, right at the seam. Right? End of Clinton's eight years, beginning of George W. Bush's eight years, we were very much in line with sort of that historical political bell curve. Lots of people in the middle, very few people at the edges. That is changing right before our eyes. Let's go to the year 2011. We are now more polarized in 2011. Let's go to 2014. It really starts getting crazy. Less in the middle, more at the edges. 2015, 2017. Statistically, that's about where we are right now. Let's go back to 2000, I'm sorry, 1999. That's where we were, this is where we are. That's where we were, this is where we are. Oh, I love the magic of that. So much power, just speak something, it happens. It's kind of concerning. Now, I, I'm not 
saying at all that any one of those political stances are right or wrong. That's not the point at all. I mean, I have great Christian friends at every single point in that political spectrum, right? So the point is not the political stance. The point is that we are becoming more and more polarized and divided. It's a culture of outrage fueled by division, believing the worst in somebody, assuming the worst, and then blasting that to the world. Social media, traditional media. And so here we are in that kind of culture, starting an eight-week series on radical unity. It's a survey of the New Testament, hearing God's heart for radical unity. So are we crazy to do this? Probably a little, I'll be honest. Probably a little. There's, there's going to be some some struggle in this. There's going to be some thinking in this. There's going to be some difficult things to wrestle through in these eight weeks. But I believe there is nothing right now more critical than for us to paint the New Testament vision of radical unity and just ask ourselves the question, how can I get on board with this movement that Jesus started? A movement of perfect unity with God, perfect unity with each other, perfect unity globally. That's the vision Jesus started. It's going to take a lot for us to get engaged with that vision. Here's the good news. The good news is that the time of Christ was a time of utter division, far more division than, than there is right now. Let me put it to you this way. There was, a, there was vastly more division and outrage during the time of Christ than there is today, by a long shot. You might think today is crazy with division. Back then, Jew and Gentile, uh, slave, free, rich, poor, male, female, those divisions were radical divisions. That's when Jesus came. But even in that chaos of endless war, extreme racism, crushing oppression, a voracious greed and systemic injustice in that culture of the, of the first century, God's newly revealed plan of radical unity was born. And God's vision of radical unity was born with the birth of Jesus. Jesus brought with him this, this vision of radical unity that God had always understood but revealed to the world first through Jesus. That vision of radical unity is called the new covenant. In, in the New Testament, the new covenant is revealed and the new covenant is shared and the new covenant is lived and the new covenant is set up for a model uh, for us all. It's a model for us all. Now, before we get to the details of the new covenant, we've got to talk about the old covenant. You can only understand the new covenant of radical unity in the context of the old covenant. The old covenant is the old way of relating to God and to one another. And that ended up with a world bitterly divided. Now, the Old Covenant is contained in the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is about 75% of the Bible. The Old Covenant is contained in the Old Testament. And when we think about a covenant, just think about a deal. Just think about a deal. Old Covenant is an old deal. It's a deal between man and God, and we'll talk about that. Um, but before we talk about it, I, I've got to warn you here. Be patient for 10 minutes. Over the next 10 minutes, you're going to hear some things about the Old Covenant and the Old Testament that you don't normally hear in Christian church circles. Just be patient, right? And, and if you start to feel your heart get a little closed with some of the things that are said, just say, God, just keep it open a little bit. I just need a little bit of an open heart just for 10 minutes. And then there's going to be a payoff. And that payoff is going to be so great that you're going to tell the whole world, you've got to hear this message today. It was radically transforming. That's maybe a big sell, but... Hang in there. My only point is hang in there. Now, the Old Testament begins, in my opinion, with the most beautiful, poetic, magnificent vision of radical unity ever penned in any time, in any age, any place. 
It's a vision of radical unity. Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living person. Now, if you know Genesis 1 and 2, they're two different accounts of creation. And they're just frameworks for us to understand the heart of God. That's what they are, right? And so in Genesis 1, God is speaking and making, speaking and making all of creation. When he gets to, to human beings, it gets, it gets anthropomorphic. It puts God in human terms as though he has hands. He doesn't, but as though he has hands, he's reaching into the earth to form man. He speaks and makes everything else. But when it comes to humankind, he intimately is making us with his own hands. Like a potter reaching into the clay and making a beautiful piece of art, God reaches into the clay and makes humankind. This is the image of Genesis 1 and 2. It's an image of radical unity between God and man. We are his work of art. His thoughts are for us. We are created in his image so we can think like God and we can, we can imagine things of eternity and we can think outside of ourselves, right? It's a vision of radical unity. Genesis 2.22 then the Lord fashioned woman from the side of a man and, and brought her to him. At last the man exclaimed, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from the man. Now the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. That's one of the key passages at the marriage retreat, finishing up, so they're having a good time, um, for sure. This passage is a passage of, uh, now they're all not naked together in the, in the anyway. The Lord fashioned the woman from the man. So, so here's the imagery of Genesis chapter two, that God is pulling the woman from the man, from his side. So they're equals, equal dignity, equal in every way, equal respect, equally made in the image of God, said two times. So God is serious about men and women being equal. And so it's a vision of radical unity among the genders. And then there's this marriage ceremony. He brings them together. They are naked and unashamed, meaning they're intimate relationally, and the two become one flesh. They're intimate sexually, and so Genesis 2 is a radical unity vision for marriage. Radical unity between God and man, radical unity between man and woman, radical unity between husband and wife. Beautiful image of radical unity. Genesis 1.28 says this, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. There's this imagery of the garden, and, and, and some of us might think, well, God wanted us to be in this garden, this little bubble. No, he, he never wanted us in the garden. He said, get out of the garden, fill the earth. I want this earth filled with people and bring my dominion over it, bring my peace over all the people and all the earth. So Genesis 128 is really a vision of radical unity among all people of the earth. This is why Genesis 1 and 2 is so critically important. It's a vision of radical unity with God, radical unity man and woman, radical unity husband and wife, radical unity among all people everywhere. It's an amazing vision in the first two pages of the Old Testament. Then there's page three, and it goes downhill fast. Page three goes downhill fast. It's a story of humankind dishonoring God, disobeying God, and thinking about themselves. No longer a vision of radical unity, but a vision of themselves. How can I be more powerful? How can I be like God? How can I forget the woman and forget God's vision, right? So Adam eats. How can I forget the man, forget God's vision? Eve eats. Actually, she went first. She blames the man, the, blame, the man blames her. They both blame God, they blame the devil. That's an easy one, the devil made me do it. Nah, you just blew it. 
That's page three. Then page four, we have Cain murdering Abel. It's just a picture of violence that immediately takes a hold of planet Earth. Then we have Genesis 6 through 10. It's the story of, of Noah. Everything goes terribly wrong. And there's two things specifically called out that's wrong with the world. Violence and the mistreatment of women are both specifically mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. And God says, I'm starting over. Again, all just stories about the failure of humankind. Genesis 11, humankind regathers. They say, we want God out of the picture. We're building a tower and we will be gods to ourselves. Again, it's just a picture of how we can be totally consumed with ourselves and completely disregard God's vision. God has a vision of radical unity and because of selfishness and pride, we ignore it. And then there's division and outrage. So what does God do? God says, I'm still in. Even though there's failure and violence and greed and pride, even though you have dishonored me and, and completely rejected my vision of radical unity, I'm still here. But I'm going to make a deal with you. This is the old covenant deal. Here it is in Exodus 19.5. Now, Israel, if you will obey me and keep my commandments, and, and the old covenant is about the if word. So we're going to talk about the if word, right? I love that. It's the if word. I like it. All right, whatever. Now, Israel, if you will obey me and keep my commandment, you will be my own special treasure from among all the people on the earth. It's a deal between man and God. If you obey me, I will prosper you. If you disobey me, you will suffer the consequences. That is the old covenant. If you do your part, I will do my part. Basically, what God is saying is, listen, I am tired of the barbarianism among humankind. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the violence. I'm tired of the mistreatment. I'm tired of the greed and, and injustice and oppression. I'm tired of it. Tired of the slavery, right? Tired of ignoring the poor and the sick. I'm tired of it. We're going to civilize at least one people group. We're going to civilize them. So he calls Israel. He calls Abraham first and then calls Moses and says, we want a people group that's going to be civil to treat each other well. So he gave them a deal, a covenant. And that old covenant was about race. It was about Israel, blood Israel. The Old Covenant was about morality, obedience. The Old Covenant was about religion, ceremonies, about how to worship God. The Old Covenant was about politics, power. Israel, if you obey, I will make you more powerful. The Old Covenant brings division on race, morality, religion, and politics. Does that sound like a familiar list? We're still fighting about the same things today. There's nothing new. And the reason why we're fighting about this is because we have old covenant ways of thinking. We, we're thinking as though there's a deal here. God, I, I do good for you. You do good for me. God, I blow it. You bring punishment and consequences and pain. You know, if I'm right and if I'm moral and if I'm good, right, if I have it all together, that means I can judge other people because I've attained a certain status here. I've attained a certain privilege. That makes me better than you. Old covenant thinking, deal thinking, the if word gets us in trouble. It gets us fighting about the same things over and over and over again. But how did that work out? How did that work out in the old covenant? The deal, the if word, doing our part. At the end of the old covenant, they were divided and separated. The old covenant never worked. By the end of the Old Testament, the Hebrew people are conquered, enslaved, poor, dejected, and hopeless. 10 of the 12 tribes are decimated. The remaining two tribes are in slavery, and God is absolutely silent. That's the end of the Old Covenant. That's the end of the Old Testament. Didn't work. 
There was no unity with God, no unity among humankind. Why? Because human nature is simply not capable of working our way to unity with God. Human nature, because of pride, self-centeredness, is not capable of creating unity with one another. We don't do well in the if word deal. We don't do well doing our part to create unity with God. We don't do well doing our part to create unity globally. We're just not good at that. And so as you read the Old Testament, it is truly about 80% tragedy. Two pages was a good vision of radical unity. Then it goes downhill. 80% tragic. Now, people who may disagree with me, and there are plenty who disagree with me on this stuff, they will say, Scott, you're talking about the Old Testament and those terms. I just, I just don't believe that. And I say every single time, have you read the Old Testament? And every single person who, who says the Old Testament is not a tragedy has never read the Old Testament. And people who try to read the Old Testament, and, and there are some who actually succeed, <laughs> They're like, oh, that's rough. Oh, that's rough. Oh, that's rough. It is rough. Old covenant is rough. That's the uncomfortable part. There'll be a couple more. But in this discomfort, I feel the need to establish a few things because we are in a culture of outrage. Religious outrage is on a hair trigger, and so there will be a lot of accusations about this and that. So I want to establish a few things very clearly. The Old Testament is the inspired word of God, as much as it is the New Testament. That's what I believe. We embrace the Old Testament as relevant in terms of God's tenacious grace. It's relevant in terms of expressing God's tenacious grace, because as humankind continues to fail and fail and fail in this deal between us and God, God is still there. He still shows up. He still gives mercy. He still gives grace. He still forgives, and he still gives a second chance and a fifth chance and a 112th chance. The Old Testament chronicles God's tenacious grace. And we study the Old Testament quite a bit. We basically obsess on Genesis 1 and 2. It's the whole foundation of our worldview and the foundation of our faith. We've taught extensively on Genesis, Isaiah, Job, Psalms, Jonah, Proverbs we've done twice. We just completed a summer series on the Proverbs. We study the Old Testament. We are constantly pointing back to the Old Testament to set the context for the New Testament. We've got to know the old covenant so we know the beauty of the new covenant. This might be a little tough for some, but hang in there. The Old Testament is a great gift of God letting the world know what not to do. If any of us try to read the Old Testament as some kind of a model for us to live, we are hosed. It's not the way to live. It's not the way to think. It's not the way to behave. It's not the way to treat others. It's not the way to think about God and our relationship with him. It's a, it's a wonderful, beautiful, God-inspired picture of what not to do. It's tragic. I'm going to give you a little example. I hope this, this makes sense to you. Um, about eight months ago, Jenny and I bought a house. And the owners of the house said, listen, you got to buy it with the furniture. We don't want the furniture. Too bad you're getting the furniture. We're moving to Alaska. We're not taking a plate with us. So we have this household of furniture um, from, you know, raising four kids. And uh, we have this, this new house with a whole, just wall-to-wall furniture. And we downsized. So you can imagine, just stacked to the gills in furniture. It was just kind of a, a mess. And there were some antiques in there. Now, I'm not an antique person. I don't necessarily appreciate the value of antiques. I've got not much use for antiques. But um, one of them is, is in, in this picture. Now, what is it? 
You have any idea? I had to research it. Do you have any idea what it is? It's a vanity. Every service has been silent. There was one antique person at at the 9 o'clock service. It's a vanity. So apparently what would happen is is women in particular would have all their gear. You know, women, you got gear. A couple hundred years ago, you still had gears. uh, Gear. It was wigs and powder and I don't know, whatever. And there was a mirror there in the middle, and you would kind of get ready at that vanity in your powder room, right? That's what that was for. Powder room vanity. had no idea. had to research it. It is beautiful. I was a woodworker coming out of high school, and it is beautiful. Rounded wood, intricate inlays, incredible hardware, curved glass, curved lead glass. I mean, it is gorgeous. Every joint is perfect. Dovetailed drawers. I mean, gorgeous. It's for sale. (laughs) Today only. (laughs) Deal for you. (laughs) But we got it appraised, and it, I was astonished at, at the value of the appraisal. Now, you're never going to get what it's appraised for, like diamonds or spouses or whatever. It's just, you know, it's... Um, I'm sorry. I'm in a mood. I just came off the marriage retreat. Uh, it's very valuable, right? But it's totally useless. Very valuable, totally useless. Now, hang in there with me. The Old Covenant within the Old Testament is functionally useless. It is functionally useless and obsolete and weak. If you're offended by that, I just quoted Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means that he has made the first one obsolete. It's now out of date and will soon disappear. It's good news. It is good news. Now keep in mind, you know, one of the biggest offenses to people coming to faith in Christ is the Old Testament. They read the Old Testament, they're like, I can't buy into this. And we say, I can't either. It's the Old Covenant. It's the way we used to think about God. It's the way we used to divide and bicker. It's the way we used to think that religion was the way to get to God or that my good works was the way to get to God. It is old, it is weak, it is obsolete. And as the writer says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, it will soon disappear and right now, The Old Testament has utterly disappeared. The Old Covenant is gone, gone, gone. It is not even possible to adhere to the Old Covenant. I'll tell you why. The centerpiece of the Old Covenant is the temple. The temple was destroyed 1,949 years ago, destroyed, never to be built again. You cannot follow the Old Covenant without being in a tabernacle or a temple. You can't do it. Nobody follows the Old Covenant. It's actually impossible. The curators of the Old Covenant religion were the Levitical tribe, the Levites, uh, the, the priests. They served the other 11 tribes. Right now, there are no tribes of Israel. No one knows which tribe they come from because all the records were literally burned 1,949 years ago. There is no temple. There is no tabernacle. There are no Levites. There are no priests. It's impossible to follow the Old Covenant. No one, literally no one, follows the Old Covenant law. I'll just give you one of hundreds of examples. In the Old Covenant, if you had a rebellious child, he or she would be taken outside the city and stoned to death in front of everyone. There was an amen last service. (laughs) It's like, whoa, safe harbor counseling is for you. We might think of it, but it's a bad idea. Put that thought out of your head. 
And we don't do that. It's old covenant, right? It was a, a way to just civilize barbaric, barbaric people, right? It had a time and a place to just kind of threaten people to, to stay chill and not to murder and destroy and rape and pillage. Seriously, it, it had a time and a place to civilize barbaric people. Thousands and thousands of years ago, it has no place now. And nobody obeys it. No one obeys the ceremonial laws of the old covenant. The ceremonial laws involve slicing the throat and draining the bloods of millions of animals a year. No one does it. There's one tiny, tiny little sliver of the law that some people still follow. It's the dietary laws of the Old Testament. What do you call the dietary laws of the Old Testament? Kosher, right? Kosher. It's followed by some of the Jewish people today. So here's the best I could find. Two-tenths of 1% of the global population is Jewish. Of that, studies indicate a maximum of 50% of Jewish people follow kosher diet in the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant. I think that's generous, <laughs> right? Most people, when they say anything about their religious practice, pad on a lot of good stuff, right? So here's, here's the reality. At best, about one-tenth of 1% of the world keeps about one-tenth of 1% of the Old Covenant. At best, what does Hebrews 8.13 say? The Old Covenant will disappear. And about 10 years after that was written in Hebrews, literally the Old co Covenant disappeared with the temple being destroyed, not one stone upon another. All the records burned. The Jews scattered all over the world. Still the case today. It is very likely that right here, right now, 100% of this church keeps 0% of the Old Covenant. And that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. So the Old Covenant contained within the Old Testament is weak and obsolete and no longer useful to live by, but it's tremendously valuable, right? Just like that antique. It's tremendously valuable in understanding how incredible it is that we don't have to follow it anymore. You cannot follow Christ and follow the Old Covenant. You can't. So here's the question, and it's easy to answer. Should we just toss the Old Testament? Should we cut it out of our Bibles and burn it? What's the answer? No, it's part of the story. It's a tragic part of the story, but it's a part of the story. I mentioned about 80% of the Old Testament is tragic. That means there's about 20% of the Old Testament that is pure gold. I mean, you read some of the songs and poems in the Old Testament, and it's beautiful, talking about God, not only his power and sovereignty, but his grace and his mercy. It's beautiful. Also contained in the Old Testament are little nuggets promising that a new covenant is coming. Just a little bit of hope in, in, in the midst of chaos and war and injustice and violence. Here's just a couple of examples, Genesis 12, 3. Right after the tragedy of Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, Genesis 12 God promises that all the families on earth will be blessed through you. He calls Abram to be a father of a great nation, the, the Jews, and from the Jewish nation comes Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. God says, I'm not giving up. I will bless everyone, all families of the earth, radical unity. Isaiah 49, 11, God says, I will turn my mountains into roads. My highways will be raised up. They will come from afar. They will come from all over the world to me. Some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Isn't that cool that the Aswanis are coming? I mean, where's Aswan? It's the southernmost city of Egypt. I had to look it up. Basically, at the time, the end of the earth. End of the earth. 
God says there will come a day where everything that divides humankind will be made flat and everyone will come to me. Radical unity. Isaiah 51.4, listen to me, my people. Hear me, Israel, for my law will be proclaimed. My justice will become a light to the nations. Not just Israel, not just their obedience and their religion and their power, but all nations will see the light of God's love and grace. Jeremiah 31.33, the most famous Old Testament passage about the, the Old Covenant versus the New. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. Here it is. Everyone from the least to the greatest will know me. I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sin. Is the if word in that new covenant? No if words in the new covenant. It's no longer a back and forth deal. It's God just saying, one day there will be a new covenant and I just simply will love everyone everywhere. I will just do it. I will not remember their wickedness. I will not count their sin against them. I will forgive the sins of the world. God says, I'm just going to do it. One day, I'm just going to do it. No ifs. That's radical unity that God just brings. That's the new covenant contained in the New Testament. God's faithful promise that no matter what we do to fail the old covenant deal of if, God says, I'm simply going to give love, give mercy, give grace, and give forgiveness freely without cost. That is awesome. Some of us, however, are living in the old covenant. We're living in the old covenant. There's a bit of the old covenant in all of us. It's just called human nature. It's the deal, right? I do for God, he does for me. I do good, he does good for me. I do bad, he'll punish me. You know, sizing each other up based on our differences, whether it's opinions, politics, morality, race, gender, you name it. Economy, that's old covenant thinking. A world that creates division and outrage. A world that assumes God will bless the obedient and faithful and punish the disobedient and faithless pitting the obedient against the disobedient, the faithful against the faithless, pitting the right against the wrong, pitting the powerful against the powerless, pitting the privileged against the underprivileged. This tendency is chronicled in the Old Testament. This tendency is chronicled in, in human history. This tendency is in your heart, and this tendency is in mine. We've got to eradicate Old Covenant if-deal thinking. And we've got to get in line with a new covenant of unconditional, selfless blessing of everyone, everywhere. God did that for us. We get to do that for others. Old covenant thinking needs to be excised. You know what excision is? For those of you who have had surgery, maybe you've had something excised. It means removed. Several years ago, I saw a, a spot pop up, you know, on the sun side of the window here when you're driving. I saw a little spot pop up. And uh, I've got a little, you know, family history of skin cancer. So I went to the dermatologist, the dermatologist says, no big deal, just a spot, it happens. Okay, about a year, maybe two later, it had grown, did some research, doctors hate it when you do your own research. There's a downside, you do research on anything, you're gonna die in two days, all right. Go back to the doctor, this thing really is kind of concerning. No, it's, trust me, it's okay, I'm a professional. Came back later, I said, Doc, doctor, just take it out. I just, I just really want it out. Called me two days later, and when the doctor calls you, you know you're in some trouble. Right? and says, it is melanoma, we've scheduled a full excision, and it's in a couple of days, here's the time and the place, it's gotta come out. Now when they do a full excision, it's not just the area around the, the, the tumor, it is a huge area. So 
It's about that big in my arm. And of course, it's in a really bad spot right there. Uh, the doctor uh, was a little bit of a maniac and says, hey, you want to see this? And I'm looking away because I really didn't want to. But I thought, this could be interesting. And I looked and, you know, you see the vein and you see the muscle and tendons. It's, it goes deep. And then I watched him nick the main, you know, vein that takes your blood. He nicks it. Blood is everywhere. And then he goes, oh, it's not that big a deal. Takes a hot iron and sears the side. So now there's burning flesh, blood everywhere, arms ripped open. Anyway, but it's got to get out. It has to get out, right? It's a cancer and it's got to get out. And then, of course, there's a follow-up protocol. You know, initially it's for five years. It's every three months. And there's the chest x-rays and eye exams. And every square inch of your body is looked over. Of course, every one of my dermatologists have been women, right? So, I mean, they have seen it all. I don't care anymore. Just everything's off right away. Whoever's in the room, do your thing. But you do whatever it takes to make sure this does not come back because it's a cancer that could kill. Old covenant thinking is a cancer that can kill. And we're doing it all the time. And it's in the church. And it just seems normal. It's just normal. It's, it, it can't be considered normal. That self-righteous, arrogant kind of pride that judges other people can't just be normal. Thinking that if I'm good for God, God is going to do good for me. And if I fail, God's going to get me and judge me and punish me. Fear-based thinking is old covenant. Judgmental, proud thinking is old covenant. It's got to be excised. And there's two ways it gets excised from the church. One is that people voluntarily leave and they say, I cannot go with this new covenant way of thinking and I'm out of here. And there's a heartbreak to that. The other way is that we look ourselves in the mirror and we say, you know what, that old covenant, I've got it. I've got that disease. I've got that cancer. And God, would you help this be eradicated? I just want to live a relationship with you of radical unity, knowing you just pour grace upon me through your son, Jesus Christ. I do nothing to deserve it. And then, God, I want to pour that grace and unconditional love onto others. And that, that'll be the greatest privilege to love people the way you love me. I gave kind of a gross illustration of melanoma and surgery. Jesus gave a little cleaner illustration. And we'll close with this. Mark 2.22. Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. I don't know what you're thing, thinking, duh, I have never put new wine in old wineskins. Why would anybody do that? For the wine would burst with the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. Now, of course, in our day and age, we have bottles, uh, and some of us a lot, and uh, we don't know <laughs> what to do with this illustration. But back in the time, there were wineskins, right? And it was, it was you know, kind of leather skin, and the wine is an alive thing, and the leather is an alive thing. And so they worked together, the wine and the wineskins with fermentation and kind of aging of the skin, it would work together. And, and if you put new wine into old wineskins, it would just burst because the new wine is still very much alive and working, right? And it would burst the old wineskins. Jesus says, at the beginning of his ministry, I'm bringing new wine and new wineskins. And they knew what he was talking about. He was talking about Jesus putting an end to the old covenant. The very thing that identified their entire culture. The Hebrews were completely identified by the old covenant in the Old Testament. All this stuff. And Jesus says, I am setting all of it aside. The old wine and the old wine skin. The old wine skin is the old covenant. 
The old wine is all the religious rules and regulations and commandments and penalties and judgments and ceremonies and rituals and traditions and temple and priests and diets and racial delineations and tribal distinctions and hate-filled military conquest and imposing power on the poor and the sick and the minority, all of which are chronicled in the Old Testament. I'm setting that aside. That's an antique. There's something new. Now, I'm no sommelier, but what tastes better, old wine or new wine? What tastes better? Old wine tastes better. Old wine tastes better. And Jesus knew that. The old covenant tastes better. The old covenant is more fun. I mean, what is more fun than, than having this old wine, the aroma and the taste of the old wine? Oh, yeah, I am right and you are wrong. I have done my part and you have not. I am moral and you aren't. That tastes so good. Oh, we just, just lap that up, right? I have my tribe and I have my political tribe and I have my religious tribe and I have my economic tribe and I have my ethnic tribe and I have my gender tribe and I have my identity tribe. And, and we're together and, and we're saying, oh, aren't we right and aren't we good and aren't we proper? Old wine, ooh, it tastes so good. I had my old covenant relationship with God from the time I was 14 to the time I was about 23, 24. That 10-year period was my old covenant period. And I'm telling you, that tasted great. I was so proud, so arrogant. I knew it all. I lived the right life. Now, inside, I didn't know if I was right enough. Inside, I didn't know if I was good enough. But boy, on the outside, I had it all figured out. I knew who was right and who was wrong. I knew who were the good guys and who were the enemies. And I absolutely carried that pride and arrogance with me everywhere I went. That's what religion does. That's what Old Covenant does. Old Covenant tastes great. New Covenant tastes like swill. New wine swill. And you just want to spit it out of your mouth. That's why the New Testament calls the New Covenant offensive. The new covenant is offensive because it has nothing to do with me. It doesn't matter if you're right or wrong, good or not, moral or not, faithful or not, obedient or not. God has just decided to love you and to pour grace upon you. And that has nothing to do with you. That's like, what, why do I want that? I want somewhere where I can do it and I can be right and I can be pure and I can be judgmental against all those people. That's what I want. That's old covenant. It tastes great. New covenant is swill. It's offensive. So the bulk of my life here at church is having offended people come up to me and saying, you're not preaching the offense of the gospel. And I just say, are you offended? Yes, that I'm preaching the offense of the gospel. <laughs> and it's the religious who are offended. It's true at the time of Christ and it's true now. But I thank God, and I'm really serious here, I thank God that his new covenant grace was freely poured upon me, this young, arrogant, self-righteous twerp. And when I, when I finally discovered this new covenant truth, I was so heartbroken that I had lived an old covenant life and I have piled that on to others. I was in ministry at the time, piling on that guilt and shame and old covenant deal you do for God, he'll do for you. You better not mess up too much or he's gonna get you now and forever. I had to repent of that and turn from that and turn to the beauty of God's new covenant grace that Jesus gave his life for because that new covenant grace was so offensive 
They took the pure man, Jesus Christ, and nailed him to a cross for it. That's how offensive the new covenant is. It's offensive. But once we have the humility to receive it, to receive this grace, everything changes. We get to feel and experience the expressed love of God for us that's unconditional. And we get to say, God, thank you for that. And would you empower me to give that same love to others? To put aside the old and embrace, old and embrace the new. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you that you sent your son Jesus, the full expression of divinity and the fullness of humanity, to bring new wine and new wineskins. And we all prefer the old. The old is just comfortable. It tastes great to be proud, to be judgmental, to be separate, to be around people that are just like us, to reject everybody who's not. It tastes good to think that we have somehow earned our standing with you, that we are right and we are good and we're noble and we're devoted. It feels so good. But God, we need to turn from that. We need to put aside the old covenant. We, we need to know that it's part of the story of bringing in the new so we don't reject the story. We don't uh, take away the Old Testament, but we know what it is. It's simply a stepping stone to get us to the new. And Jesus says the old wine and the old wineskin must be done away with. Hebrews chapter 8 says it is obsolete and weak and ineffective. And so, God, we need to stare at this new wine and new wineskin, the new covenant of your love and your grace poured out to us without condition. Jesus gave his life to forgive the sins of the world. He rose again from the dead to give liberally new and eternal life. And we just simply receive it with great pleasure, with great joy. There's nothing we can do to earn it. And so we come to that grace with nothing but humility and gratitude. And that's the way we want to live our lives, with humility and gratitude, never considering, considering ourselves superior to anyone else. In fact, in the New Testament, to consider others as more important and more valuable than us. That's the life of Christ, and that's the life that we want to live. It's a life that is, that is a, a true life and a, and, a, and a pleasure to live, receiving your love and giving it to the world around us. Give us that open-mindedness, that open heart to receive this vision of radical unity and to give ourselves to living that kind of life so the world would see your love through us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.